This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this interview, Dr. Craig is invited to discuss his published work. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Hi, and welcome to Capturing Christianity. My name is Cameron Bertuzzi. I'm here with Dr. William Lane Craig. Let me go ahead and pull him in here really quickly. So he's here, and we're talking about all of the books that he's written over the years. And there's quite a list. Actually, let me go ahead and pull up the photo that you sent over just a little bit earlier, right before we started this. How many books are actually in this photo right here? Probably over 40, I think. 40. Wow. Yeah, on your website it says 30 plus, but now you're at 40 and you're you right, just finished. Needed. You've just finished your book. You, you were telling me right before we went live, you've just finished your book on the, uh, the historical Adam. And so now you're turning to work on your systematic theology yes. book. What, what do you anticipate the length of that one being? Oh, I suppose it'll be a multi-volume work because what I want oh. to try to do is to summarize my life's work in this systematic philosophical theology. So the books that you and I will talk about today would all be summarized in the course of uh, this book. Well, if you don't know who Dr. William Lane Craig is, he has two PhDs. He's got a PhD in philosophy and a PhD in, is it just to history or the, the evidence for the resurrection? What would no, you, what would you label it? No, it's theology. Theology. Theology, systematic theology. He runs a website called reasonablefaith.org, and they have a lot of online materials. Their website is linked in the description of this video. And by the way, with all of the books that we'll be discussing today, I don't have any of them linked yet in the description of the video, but if you're watching this after we go live or after the live stream ends, I'm going to put a list of all of the books that Dr. Craig talks about today in a pinned comment. In the, the first comment that you'll see below the YouTube video will be a list of all of the books that we discussed today. So if you'd like to check one of them out personally, then that's the way that you can do it. It's going to be the easiest way to do it. With that said, let's go ahead and get started. Which book would you like to start with? Oh, let me mention this too. So this was not Dr. Craig's idea. This was not him trying to reach out to me and ask to sell his books. That was not what this is about. Actually, I had a supporter of mine of Capturing Christianity reach out and say, this is a, they, they suggested this topic as a video. Let's just run through, because Dr. Craig, I mean, you, you just heard 40 plus books. So it would be helpful to have a, a podcast, a video, something where he just sort of explains all of the different things that he's written over the years that a lot of people probably don't even know that you've done. Most people are just familiar with, yes. for example, reasonable faith or may, maybe something as deep as time and eternity, uh, God and eternity. So they don't know that you've written so many different books. And so it, it would just be very beneficial for, uh, for this in the years to come to cover all of these books as, as w at least where you are right now, because you plan on, on writing more. But I, I just wanted to emphasize that this was not Dr. Craig trying to sell books that's not what this is about at all. We hope that this blesses you and will be encouraging and also very, very informative and that you might, it might sort of interest you in, in some way to maybe pick up one of these books and start an interest in the topic of the Kalam, maybe on time, maybe on Adam and Eve, who knows? So that, that's what the purpose of this is. With, uh, with that said, let's go ahead and get started. Which book would you like to start with? Well, let me explain my strategy in my writing ministry. In order to get double mileage out of the work that I do, my strategy is to publish uh, one book on a very scholarly level, a, a book intended for other academics, philosophers, theologians, and so forth. 
and then to take the same material and distill it down to the popular level for the ordinary layperson. So the first set of books that I did came out of my doctoral work in philosophy at the University of Birmingham. Uh, and that produced uh, this book, The Cosmological Argument from Plato to Leibniz. Not I exactly. have to say, I, I just picked this one up too, so I had to put this on screen. This is a, it, was, it was a great book. I was, I was enjoying reading this. I'm, I'm in the middle of doing a debate with rationality rules, and so this was one of the books that I turned to for, for a good chunk of it. So Good. Um, and then, in conjunction with that, I also wrote the Kalam Cosmological Argument, which is my defense of this particular version of the cosmological argument. Very good. This is the, this is the updated cover, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. This is the original. But that one, that one is way cooler. Look, that one, that one I like a lot better. Well, we've just celebrated the 40th anniversary of this book and they've reissued it now with the original green and red cover on it, which is kind of neat. Oh, nice. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit more about what, what went into these books. These, these first two that you, yes. that you mentioned. Um, I had encountered, after graduating from college, this argument for the existence of God based upon the finitude of the past, and it absolutely captivated me. Um, the principal proponent of that argument was Stuart Hackett in his book, The Resurrection of Theism. And I wanted to find out, to settle my mind, was this really a sound argument for God's existence. And so I purposed that if I did do PhD work in philosophy, I would write my doctoral dissertation on this argument. And that's exactly what happened. We were able to go to the University of Birmingham in England, study with John Hick, and he supervised my work on the cosmological argument. And these books flowed out of that study. Yeah, as I was reading the introduction to these books, you were saying that you didn't. Well, maybe maybe I'm misremembering. Was did you write these books because there wasn't anything else sort of like this available? Is that one of the, the reasons no, why you wanted I, to do it? No, it was because I had done this doctoral dissertation, a massive dissertation, and I wanted to make it available to the reading public because. When I went on to a university campus speaking on, say, the existence of God or Christianity, I could refer people to this book if they wanted to go any deeper as an evidential uh, case for the reality of a personal creator uh, of the universe. And so that was the motivating force behind the publication of the material. And to make it accessible to the average person, I put it on in the form of this little book called The Existence of God and the Beginning of the Universe. Uh, and this little book was actually the first of the three books that appeared that came out of that doctoral work in philosophy. How many pages is that one? Uh, it's very short. <laughs> it's got big print. Let me just tell you. Um, it's about 100 pages long. Would you recommend that one today as something no, that people, for an introduction? I wouldn't because it's dated. You see, I wrote it in 1977, and since then, so much more water has flowed under the bridge in astrophysical cosmology. I mean, there's been the work of Stephen Hawking, 
the bord lenkin theorem, uh, quantum models of the origin of the universe, inflationary cosmogony. So uh, I've tried to keep up uh, with that development in the field of astrophysics and cosmology. And so the more recent books would be um, the ones that I would recommend today rather than this one from the uh, late 1970s. And we're about to get to those. Yeah, so what's the, what's the next book on your, uh, that you've got there? Well, uh, after studying at the University of Birmingham, I went on to the University of Munich to do to my doctoral work in theology under Wolfhard Pannenberg. Pannenberg had stunned German theology by arguing for the resurrection of Jesus historically. And I wanted to work under Pannenberg because if I could develop an historical argument for Jesus' resurrection, that would beautifully supplement this cosmological argument for the existence of God. And so we did go to Germany and wrote on the resurrection of Jesus, and a number of books flowed out of that doctoral work. The first of these was the actual dissertation itself, which is called The Historical Argument for the Resurrection of Jesus During the Deist Controversy. And this is, as it were, a history of historical apologetics for the resurrection of Jesus. Then I did my own uh, version of a historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus in this companion volume, which is called Assessing the New Testament Evidence for the Historicity of the Resurrection of Jesus. So those two books go together. The one is the historical survey, and then the other is my own defense of the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. And then, once again, I distilled it down to a popular level in this little book called The Sun Rises, S-O-N, and this is for the layperson um, summarizing the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. If we can pause on that last one, I recommend The Sun Rises to anybody that is interested in the evidence for the resurrection. It is one of my favorite books. One of the things that I love about it is that, as you mentioned, it's for the layperson, so anybody can really pick it up and, and get a lot out of it. But what, what what really struck me about when I when I read that book was, I, I understand now that it's the abridged version, it's the shortened version of your academic book. Yes. And so when I was reading it, I was just struck by how many arguments were condensed into so few pages. So it would I would have to pause after every page. I would have to pause and be like, and that was a lot of material just to just to comprehend. So that that book, The Sun Rises, is absolutely hands down one of my favorite books on the evidence for the resurrection for the very fact that, as you said, it's the condensed version. So it's just very, it's great. So I, I highly recommend that if you're, if that's you're interested. One, that's one that you can still read today with great profit because unlike astrophysical cosmology, the evidence for the Jesus' resurrection isn't changing much. Um, it's still based in these same ancient sources. Uh, and so why there is progress in New Testament studies in analyzing these sources and the traditions behind them, um, the sunrises is still very much up to date. Were there any more books that came out of that time there? Yes. Or did you change to another topic? As a result of my work on the resurrection, I have had the opportunity over the years to debate some of the principal New Testament scholars who are skeptical 
about the historical Jesus. One of these, for example, is John Dominic Crossan. And I debated him uh, in Chicago in a debate moderated by William F. Buckley uh, entitled, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And that was then put into book form with two respondents picked by Crossan and two respondents picked by me. And this is a wonderful exchange with a prominent skeptical New Testament scholar on the resurrection of Jesus. I had the chance to do the same thing at Boston College with Gerhard Ludemann. Ludemann was the leading German critical scholar on Jesus' resurrection. And uh, Paul Copan edited this book of that debate uh, called The Resurrection of Jesus, Fact or Figment. And this again then has two respondents to the debate picked by Ludemann and two picked by me along with our final responses. So the opportunity to debate these scholars um, has been a, a wonderful opportunity to see how these arguments hold up. I mean, it's one thing to write a book of your own where you're not challenged. It's a very different thing to co-author uh, a debate book with respondents who are critical and see how the arguments hold up. And I've been so pleased to see how strong the case for Jesus' resurrection is in the face of these uh, critics. All right, where would you like to go next? Well, after my doctoral work was over, I began to teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I thought, what should I pick for my research project next? And I was interested in what philosophers call the coherence of theism. And this is basically a study of the attributes of God to try to show that the concept of God and his attributes is a coherent idea. And so the first attribute that I decided to tackle was divine omniscience, because this is extremely controversial. Uh, many people have claimed that divine foreknowledge of the future is incompatible with human freedom. Uh, the idea is that if God knows everything that's going to happen and God cannot be mistaken, then everything is fated to occur and there is no free will. So for seven years, I worked on that topic, and again, uh, three books flowed out of that. The first was um, this one, The Problem of Divine Foreknowledge and Human Freedom from Aristotle to Suarez. And I think you see the pattern here again. First, the historical survey of the problem from Aristotle up through Suarez, a proponent of middle knowledge. And then I wrote my own defense of the compatibility of divine foreknowledge and human freedom in this book, The Problem of Divine Foreknowledge and Human Freedom, where I argue for their compatibility. Now those are very academic uh, scholarly books. So I distilled that same material down to this little volume uh, called The Only Wise God, which is for lay people. And it is just a fascinating discussion of God's foreknowledge of the future and analogies to it in things like backward causation, uh, precognition of the future, um, something called Newcomb's paradox, and so forth. It is a wide-ranging 
study of the compatibility of divine foreknowledge and human freedom. Is that another book that you would recommend today? Very much so. This is a book on which I was way ahead of the curve. It was published in 1985, and that was before people like Clark Pinnock and uh, others began to talk about the so-called openness of God. So I was way ahead of the curve on this, and um, I think it is, is a potent antidote to the so-called openness of God theology, which for those who aren't aware of it, uh, is a theology that denies God's knowledge of the future. It says that God gambles, he, he just tries to work things out as best he can with his knowledge of the past and present. Where did you go from here? Well, having done that work, I had the opportunity then to participate in books that were collaborative on the topic. So here's a book that was edited by James Bilby and Paul Eddy called uh, Divine Foreknowledge, Four Views. And I participate in this book with the openness theologian, Greg Boyd, David Hunt, who holds to uh, what is called simple foreknowledge of the future, but he denies middle knowledge. And then uh, Paul Helm, who is a Calvinist, and says the way God foreknows the future is that he predetermines everything himself. And so in this book, I defend the middle knowledge option against openness theology, simple foreknowledge, and uh, divine determinism. That sounds really interesting. That's that's an area where I've only got like a superficial understanding of the problems. I mean, I've heard your lectures that you give on it in your defenders class. I don't know if you'd want to call those lectures. Maybe you would. Yes. But I I've I've heard those and uh, yeah the the. Anyways, I don't I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here. Sure. But uh, l- let's get to the next book. Is this uh, on the same topic or we got a new topic? New now? topic now. Having finished uh, the study of divine omniscience um, after seven years. I decided to tackle the attribute of divine eternity. And the key question here is, is God timeless? That is to say, does he transcend time altogether? Or is God everlasting throughout infinite time, omnitemporal? And this is a issue that has divided Christian theologians and philosophers right since the time of the church fathers up until today. Um, and I was really um, troubled by this issue. I didn't know how to make sense of God's eternity. Uh, And so that was the topic I decided to take on next, and I spent 11 years, the next 11 years, working on the subject of divine eternity and God's relationship to time. And here are the books that came out of that. First, let me say that I believe that in order to settle the question of God's relationship to time, you have to decide what the nature of time itself is. So before you can even tackle the theological question, you've got to settle the philosophical question of the nature of time. And so I wrote a two-volume set of books, the first called The Tensed, Theory of Time, a Critical Examination, and then the second companion volume, The Tenseless Theory of Time, a Critical Examination. And these two books 
deal with the arguments for and against the tensed and the tenseless theory of time. And my studied view at the end of this is to say that time is tensed. That is to say that the difference between past, present, and future is not just perspectival. It is objective. It's an objective feature of reality, and the temporal becoming is real. Things really do come into being and go out of being. And on that basis, then, I argue in this book, uh, God, Time, and Eternity, that the most plausible understanding of divine eternity is that God is timeless without creation and in time subsequent to the moment of creation. I'm uh, I'm I'm thinking about like the transition that you go from the Kalam to history, uh, and how, how did was it like a natural organic path to all of these different subjects? You know, it wasn't Cameron, but it has turned out to be that way. I, I've looked back on it, and I thought my whole philosophical career could be seen as a series of footnotes on the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, apart from the work on the resurrection, which is quite apart, being New Testament studies. But, for example, once you decide that there is a personal creator of the universe and that the series of past events had a beginning, then the question of the relationship of this creator to time just cannot be avoided. It, it just arises. So... The work on divine eternity was a critical supplement to my Kalam cosmological argument in understanding the relationship of the creator to time. And then if temporal becoming is real, if the difference between past, present, and future is objective, then again, immediately the question of divine foreknowledge of the future arises and cannot be avoided. If the future is not real, then how can God know it? So it, it really is amazing how all of this coheres together so well. It's all interconnected. It well, is. Here's, a, here's, a, here's one question that I have about your, your work on time, because you, you've, in the, our previous interview on the atonement, one of the things that you said that was really interesting, you said that your, your view on the tensed theory of time was one of the arguments that you're most confident about your belief in the, the A theory, the tensed view of time. Yeah. And so is this something that as you, as you began your study, because most scientists, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, most scientists are B theorists. They believe in the tense less theory of time. That and so, may be true. I, I think it's kind of an even divide. Oh, interesting. Well, as you were going into your study, were you expecting to land on A theory or B theory? Were you biased yeah. in any way toward, toward landing on one side? I am what I would call a common sense philosopher. I think that if you are led to metaphysical views that are outrageous to common sense, you're probably on the wrong path. And I think, and everybody acknowledges that the common sense view of time is that temporal becoming is real, that things really do come into being and pass away, that I don't exist as a sort of tenseless four-dimensional object. 
um, and that the difference between past, present, and future is real, not just perspectival. So yes, right from the beginning, I had a very deep intuitive sense that the tense theory of time was correct, but I wanted to see what arguments could be offered in its favor, what arguments against it, and then to do the same thing for the tenseless theory of time. I don't want to get us too off track here, but I have a follow-up question. Is there anything, any common sense view that you've started with, whereas after you've done a, an inspection of the literature that you've come to change your mind about? I don't think so. Um, not with respect to common sense views. I think in every case I've um, developed viewpoints that are in line, I believe, with common sense. Yeah, one of the, one of the views that I'm thinking about is there's a a view among some naturalist philosophers, including uh, Rosenberg. What's his first name? Alex. Alex Rosenberg. How he he denies that he exists. Yeah. And that yeah. that seems like a that those are the type of common sense views that you're that we're talking about. That's here, right? exactly so if, right. If if you're led like Rosenberg is to say, I do not exist. I am not the same person who was speaking with you one minute ago. Um, I have no thoughts about anything, and every sentence in my book is meaningless, including this one. You're on the wrong track, brother. All right, let's move on to uh, to the next series of books, or, or do we have well, more in the, more the vein in of time? This series. We haven't seen the popular level version of my work on God and time, and that's this book, Time and Eternity. I think that this is perhaps my best book. Uh, I'm very proud of it. It uh, takes a very difficult topic, namely God and the nature of time, and integrates these together um, and produces a theory of God and time, I think, that is uh, very plausible. It's beautifully illustrated, uh, footnotes at the bottom of each page for easy reference. Uh, so Time and Eternity is one of the books that I'm most proud of. And then again, I've had the opportunity to do collaborative books on God and time. Here is a book that was edited by uh, my friend Greg Gansel called God and Time, Four Views. And I picked the four participants to be in this book. It's uh, Paul Helm, who tells to divine timelessness, um, Alan Paget, who holds that God exists prior to creation in a kind of non-metric time, myself, and then Nicholas Wolderstorff, who holds that God is simply omnitemporal throughout infinite time. And so, once again, you get the four different views in this book with a dialogue um, between these four thinkers. Let's move on to the to the next subject. The next area then uh, that I tackled after spending 11 years on God and time was divine aseity. Um, aseity is the property of God's self-existence. That is to say that God and God alone is an uncreated reality. Everything other than God that exists is created. And this view is challenged by a philosophy called Platonism, which holds that in addition to God, 
There are uncreated abstract objects, things like numbers, sets, and other mathematical entities, propositions, properties, possible worlds, even things like literary compositions and musical scores are thought to be abstract objects by some. Fictional characters are thought by some to be abstract objects. And this seemed to me to be a dagger in the heart of Christian theism. I first encountered this objection in 1982 when I was at a conference of the Society of Christian Philosophers in Milwaukee and heard Thomas Morris from the University of Notre Dame lecture on what he called absolute creation, where he laid out this objection to God's self-existence and aseity from the existence of abstract objects. And I thought this is the most powerful objection to theism I've ever heard, far more powerful than the problem of evil, and I did not know how to answer it. To compound problems, Morris's own solution seemed to be viciously circular, and almost no one was persuaded by it. And so this was an unresolved issue in my mind for decades, really. And finally, after finishing my work on divine eternity, I decided it was time to take this off the shelf and to tackle it. And so, Cameron, I spent the next 13 years studying divine aseity and the challenge of Platonism until I could come to rest on this issue. And out of that flowed these two books. First, uh, God and Abstract Objects. Um, this is the scholarly level version, about 500 pages long, um, defending God's unique status as the sole uncreated reality, and defending an anti-realist view of abstract objects, that, to, to hold that abstract objects simply do not exist. I had the opportunity to distill this to a popular level form, or semi-popular, when I was invited to give the Cadbury lectures at my alma mater, uh, the University of Birmingham. And so Oxford University Press published those lectures as God Over All, um, which was published in 2016. So this would be the version for uh, someone who is not a professional philosopher, uh, but is interested in divine aseity and the challenge of Platonism. Are those the only two books that came out of your study? Yes. Uh, now, I am currently doing a debate book with Peter Van Inwagen for uh, Rutledge um, called um, Are There Numbers? And this will be our debate on this subject. Van Inwagen is a prominent Platonist, and I'm an anti-realist. And so I will be doing this book with him. But um, so far, these are the only two books that have come out of that study because it's fairly recent. The one was just published in 2017. Have you already started the debate with, with him, or is this something that you're planning yes, to do? Yes. Um, interestingly enough, at the American Philosophical Association two years ago in New York, a session was held on God overall and featured... Peter Van Inwagen, a Platonist, and Greg Welty, who is a divine conceptualist who believes that numbers and sets and properties are thoughts in the mind of God. 
And so we had the opportunity in that session to go at it. And Tyron Goldschmidt, who is a, a philosopher, saw it and invited Van Wagen and me to participate in this book in a series uh, called Little Debates on Big Subjects for uh, Rutledge. And so that was how that came about. And I have already begun to um, write that, that debate book, yes. Do you have any any personal anecdotes about Peter Vandenwagen that might interest our, our listeners? <laughs> well, I don't think he would mind if I shared that um, he, like I, has restless leg syndrome. So when he tries to sleep at night, he has great difficulty in getting to rest and sleeping because his legs are restless. They, they kick about. And he told me one time when he was at a conference in Spain, he had to actually get up in the middle of the night and just walk about the town trying to walk this off um, because it was so intolerable. He has it much worse than I do. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, let's move on to the uh, to the next series of books. Well, the last thing that I have published is my work on the atonement of Christ. Um, this is in preparation for my writing of philosophical systematic theology, my next project. I knew there were certain areas in systematic theology where I was weak. One of these areas was the atonement. And I had waited for years for other Christian philosophers to step up to the plate and to offer a robust defense of a Reformation view of Christ's atoning death. And no one, no one has done so. And so I realized I was going to have to tackle it myself. And so that was what I did. I spent about two years working on the subject of the atonement. Out of that came this little book called The Atonement, which is published by Cambridge University Press. It's not really a popular level book, but it is a very short book. Um, only around 100 pages long. And in July, Baylor University Press will be releasing this larger and more expansive uh, treatment of the atonement called Atonement and the Death of Christ. And as you can see from the um, notice on the front, this is a sample copy, not for sale, that was sent to me by the publisher in advance um, to scrutinize for errors and so forth. Uh, but that will be out in July, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing this work on the atonement finally see the light of day. Wow, that looks that looks really cool. You said in July it comes out. Yes. All right. What 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 do you have next? Do you have any others to? Um, well, the only other thing that I brought with me today to mention would be books that are not in this series of studies of the attributes of God but nevertheless have been very significant books for me. And the first one would be Reasonable Faith, which has become my signature book in a way. It gave the name to the ministry that mm -hmm. we now direct called Reasonable Faith, our web-based ministry at reasonablefaith.org. What was the original name of, of that one? Uh, Apologetics and Introduction. It was originally... Why, why the name change? Well, partly because of, it was a different publisher. The Apologetics and Introduction went out of print, and I revised it 
and wanted to bring it back into print. And so the publisher gave it a new name. Now, the funny thing was that I wanted to call it Faith on the Offensive uh, in the idea that this is a positive case for the Christian faith. But I think they didn't like this word offensive because it has a double entendre to it. And so they said, let's call it reasonable faith. And I didn't like that. To me, that was about as exciting as cold oatmeal. But what I didn't realize is that the name reasonable faith is very controversial among secularists. The idea that there yeah, right. reasonable faith is almost like an oxymoron. And so it's turned out to be a really great title and a great name for the ministry. And you're on the third edition of this book, is that correct? Yes, the one I showed you here is the third edition, the most recent. Yeah. Well, so what's the next book? The next one and last that I brought would be the popular level version of Reasonable Faith, and this is called On Guard. On Guard is a sort of primer for beginners in apologetics, uh, someone who has no background. And what this is is a kind of manual for the defense of the faith. It gives you um, about four arguments for God's existence, and then it gives answers to the principal atheistic objections, uh, such as the problem of evil, and then a defense of the radical self-understanding and personal claims of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, his resurrection from the dead, and the uniqueness of Christ as the means of salvation. So On Guard is um, a wonderful book for lay people who haven't studied apologetics before, but who would like to equip themselves to be able to answer objections from unbelievers and to positively commend their faith to unbelievers. Are there any books that you'd like to mention, like an honorable mention, any books that you've edited? Yes, I would think one of the most important would be the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, which I and J.P. Moreland edited. Our goal in this book was to pick the absolutely top scholars on these different arguments for God's existence. For example, Alexander Proust on the contingency argument, I and James Sinclair on the Kalam cosmological argument, Robin Collins on the fine-tuning argument, uh, J.P. Moreland on the argument from mind, uh, Lydia and Tim McGrew on the evidence for the resurrection. And then to give these scholars unlimited pages to develop their argument, not just a little 20-page, 30-page article, but an 80-page, 100-page article in the Blackwell Companion. And so this is a volume that is really without parallel in the literature because it gives top experts the space uh, and freedom to develop their argument as fully as they wish. And it is really a tour de force. Let me see if we can actually pinpoint that that one there it is it's right beneath your hand your uh your it's in the middle column here you can't see the picture but oh. it's uh on 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 the uh the live stream here you can actually see it says natural theology so it's a pretty considerable sizable book yes it's a and it's big tome 
Yeah, it's it's great, and it has a lot of really great articles. I mean, the the one from Robin Collins yeah. is so good on the oh, fine tuning art. He's, he's it is incredible. Brilliant. I, I am so frustrated with Robin because I think he's been working on this book for twenty years. I think called the Well Tempered Universe. The title comes from a, a term used for tuning pianos when a piano is finely tuned by a piano tuner, it's called tempered. And so he, his title that he has picked is The Well-Tempered Universe. And it's grown out of two volumes in manuscript, but he's not gotten around to publishing it yet. And I'm afraid that by the time he finally publishes it, I'm going to be too old to enjoy and use it. So I really want Robin to get on the ball here and get this thing published. <laughs> but in the meantime, his published articles are are just terrific on fine tuning. There's no one better. Well, I think it'd be uh, it. We should definitely mention your uh, your co-written book with J.P. Moreland, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, as well. Yes, I think that is worth mentioning. J.P. and I wrote this introduction to uh, Christian philosophy. And J.P. wrote um, the larger part of the book. I wrote the chapters on philosophy of religion, uh, on philosophy of space and time, on um, the uh, use of logic and reasoning. Um, And it is a, a really terrific book. Um, for uh, undergraduates or graduates who are uh, needing an introduction to the broad range of philosophy, whether epistemology, metaphysics, ethics, philosophy of science, philosophy of religion, and so forth. Are there any articles that you've written that are of note that, that listeners might be interested in, in searching out, maybe maybe picking up and reading for themselves? Any, any that stick out in your mind? You've caught me off balance there, uh, Cameron. Um, usually, the articles that I publish in professional journals will be excerpted or adapted from the books. And so a person wouldn't need to read the articles if he's read and digested the books. Ah, okay. All right. Well, do you have any time to take some questions from Certainly. our audience? Yeah. Just for uh, just for a few minutes. We have one on the historical Adam. Is that in, is that okay? Yeah, I didn't mention that. Let me just say that for the last two years, as part of this project of writing a, philosoph- a systematic philosophical theology. I needed to bone up in the area of theological anthropology as well. I just had not come to any settled views on the historical atom and the compatibility of the historical atom with contemporary science. And so I have just finished a two-year study of the topic of the historical atom and have submitted that manuscript now to Baylor University Press, and it's under review. Yeah, so that is very, very recent news that you finished your study on the historical Adam and Eve. As yes. of like, how recent was that? Like a week ago? Last week. Wow. It's due to the wow, quarantine. Really cool. Oh, because well, that's good. I've got all this time to spend morning till evening writing and uh, studying. All right. Well, we have a super chat from David LaRosa. He says, Dr. Craig, do you think Neanderthals would thrive in the 21st century? 
given the string the string evidence versus opinions that skull shape ah. is critical for development of cognitive faculties modern humans possess, making them bearers of the highly coveted Imago Dei? It's not the skull shape that is important. It is the skull or cranial capacity. What size brain would it permit? And here, the cranial capacity of Neanderthals actually exceeds that of modern Homo sapiens. In fact, the cranial capacity of Homo sapiens has actually been decreasing over the last 10,000 years, believe it or not. So would they flourish if they were transported by time machine into our day and age? Yes, they would. Um, Joshua Swamidas, who has been on the program here with me before, who is a computational biologist, has emphasized to me that even people who are taken out of very primitive cultures, like Stone Age cultures, uh, and placed into a modern society, immediately learn to adapt to it, to get along, and to function. Uh, a great example of this would be when the um, uh, colonists came from Europe to the United States, and they confronted American Indians who were living in a Stone Age culture. They hadn't invented smelting of metals. They were still using arrowheads and tomahawks and things of that sort. This was a Stone Age culture. And yet, uh, Squanto, uh, one of the Indians who met with the pilgrims, was able to return to England with them, where he was employed as a butler for many years and got along just fine in English society before he expressed a desire to return to his own people. So here's a man who was plucked up out of a Stone Age culture, transported into um, 18th century Europe, the, the, the Europe of Newton's uh, Principia Mathematica, of um, Bach's uh, concertos, of uh, the cathedrals and uh, great architecture, and he got along just fine. So yes, I, I think that Neanderthals would just do fine in our society today. We have another question from Anthony Rowden. Thank you for your super chat, Anthony. He says, Dr. Craig, what tips would you give for people hoping to write their own books in the future? Wow. I guess it would depend on what type of book you want to write. If you, like me, want to write academic books, then I think you've got to invest a good deal of study. You need to get an advanced degree and to understand the literature of scholarship and how to interact with it. On the other hand, if you just want to write popular level books, then I would say that probably what you need to do is get lots of personal experiences so that you can relate personal anecdotes that others will find entertaining and interesting and will inspire or encourage them. And so get involved in activities that would give you lots of personal experiences to draw upon. Uh, we have another super chat from Axa Peer. It says, how do you keep a childlike faith in Jesus with all the theology and philosophy acquisition over a lifetime? Well, I like to distinguish between what I call a childlike faith and a childish faith. A childlike faith 
is a wholehearted trust and repose in God as your heavenly Father. And this is a kind of faith that Jesus commends to us. But a childish faith is an unreflective, immature faith. And the Bible does not commend that kind of faith to us. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says to the Corinthians, do not be children in your thinking. Be babes in evil, but in thinking be mature. And so I try to have an intelligent faith, a reflective faith, intellectually, but at the same time I try to maintain my devotional life, uh, my church life, and other personal disciplines that will enable me to have this wholehearted trust and repose in God as my Heavenly Father. Okay, we have another question, and I just uh, scrolled past it, but here we go. All right, Cranman Photo Cinema, he's our videographer. He says, Dr. Craig, why are events beginning to exist excluded in the Kalam? Fluctuations and libertarian ah. free will choices aren't uncaused. So why wouldn't premise one also apply to events? Well, we don't need to make it apply to events. So long as it applies to things, it means that the universe, which came into being, had a beginning had to have a transcendent cause. So there's no need to claim too much. Um, and this, It's a more modest premise. Yeah, it's a more modest premise. I think it's more intuitively obvious, too. I mean, good night. Nobody thinks that a horse could just materialize out of nothing in this room right now, or that an Eskimo village or a gasoline station could just pop into being. So... Um, while people might give a run for its money to the idea of an uncaused event, the idea of things coming into being uncaused, I think, is just uh, absurd. Um, and this will then enable you just to avoid altogether questions about whether quantum mechanical events are uncaused. Is quantum indeterminacy real or merely epistemic? It avoids the question about the cause of free choices and so forth. So it's a more modest premise and I think more intuitively obvious. Okay, another question from Guarded Acumen. He says, what happened to his books on special relativity? Oh, well, I just didn't mention them. <laughs> I haven't mentioned all 40 here today, but I have two books that also came out of this work on God and time. And one of them is, um, how does it go? It's something like metaphysics and the theory of relativity. And this is a philosophical reflection upon special and general relativity theory. And then Quentin Smith and I edited together another volume of collected essays called Einstein and... I think the theory of relativity or Einstein and absolute time or something like that. And this was for the centenary of the special theory of relativity, which Einstein published in 1905. This book was done around 2005 and is a series of essays by people who hold to what's called a neo-Lorentzian theory of special relativity, 
which Smith and I both hold to. That is to say, it holds that there actually are relations of absolute simultaneity and absolute length um, and so forth, um, even though our physical measures of time and length are relative to the motion of observers. All right, we have a question from Ontario Woods. He says, is the belief, yeah, is the belief in the divinity of Christ necessary for salvation? I think so, or I would say at least this much, that it cannot be denied. I imagine that certain people like the thief on the cross had no explicit belief in the divinity of Christ, but he trusted in Jesus. He said, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, even in his dying moment. And while he may not have had an explicit belief in the divinity of Christ, he didn't deny it. And so I think that would be key. Also think of people who have never heard of Christ, but who come to know God by their response to natural or, or general revelation alone. Um, or people in the Old Testament, I guess that's the most obvious example. People in the Old Testament are saved, and they have no explicit belief in the divinity of Christ. Abraham didn't have any belief in Christ's divinity or Moses, and yet they clearly are part of the kingdom of God. So I think we can point to a number of examples of people who uh, lack such an explicit belief, but they do not deny it. They respond in an appropriate way to the revelation that God has given to them. Super chat from Benjamin Carlson. Thank you for that. He says, Dr. Craig, which non-academic book has influenced you the most? That might be a tough one. Yeah. Well, would you call Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov a non-academic book? I don't know. It's, I think so. It's one of the greatest works of literature. I love Russian literature. And Dostoevsky is the greatest, in my opinion. So his book, The Brothers Karamazov, explains the absurdity of life and the moral nihilism that results from a denial of the existence of God and illustrates its corrupting effects upon the human personality and society so powerfully. So I suppose I would point to that book. Uh, I think we have time for maybe two more questions. So this one from Maverick Christian, he says, what advice would you impart to a Christian philosophy student, including one that works full-time and goes to school part-time? Well, I would say make sure you get well-grounded in logic. Take some courses in introductory, uh, sentential, or symbolic logic and then make sure you get some modal logic under your belt as well. There's a chapter covering this in Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. So I think that's really essential. That is to the philosopher what Greek is to the New Testament scholar. Um, so that would be my main advice. I'd also recommended reading um, Frederick Copleston's nine-volume History of Philosophy and taking notes on it. Uh, that will give you a, a compendium of notes 
on the whole history of Western philosophy that will acquaint you with the principal figures of Western thought and will serve you very well into the future. And then you might look at Moreland and my book, Philosophical Foundations, for an introduction to doing philosophy from a Christian point of view. I was talking with an atheist a while back, and he, he was telling me, he's a friend of mine, he was telling me that he, he doesn't stay, stay away from in reading introductory books, even as someone who's has some experience in the field, because you can always learn new things, maybe even just how to say something in a, in a better way, summarize some yeah. argument from someone else. So, so don't push off, even if you're someone who has experience, don't push away introductory books just because it's an introduction, something you might already be familiar with. They might put something away that is uh, more succinct, more beautiful, and uh, more persuasive, perhaps. Yeah. So don't push away uh, introductory books, even if you've got some some background. Um, all right, last question from, uh, this is another one from our videographer. He says, Dr. Craig, would you be willing to do a show with Cameron that's just a Q&A on all of your work? Oh, certainly. I would enjoy that. I've enjoyed my interviews with Cameron very much, and um, I'm so appreciative of getting them out there on, on the YouTube so that people worldwide can access these. So certainly I would. Awesome. All right. Well, we can we can work on that in the in the background. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It's been a great it's been a great video interview today. And uh, so, yeah, just appreciate all of your work and everything that you've done. I'm sure that people watching, uh, they'd all like to to thank you personally. Uh, most of the people that are watching this, at least. <laughs> but so I I, uh, I appreciate you coming on. Oh, certainly, Cameron. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to share a little bit about my work. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.